Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Welcome back to the Alpha Exchange five-year anniversary episode. You've reached part two, another 5,000 words from me and our guests, and hopefully, some nuggets of insight that help you think about the wonderful world of markets. Let's recap where we are on this retrospective podcast. My aim is to highlight for you the thought process and the risk philosophy that Alpha Exchange guests utilize in order to allocate and protect capital. We've established a four-dimensional risk cube of sorts, economic, financial, monetary, and geopolitical. We have shown how these can overlap, sometimes reinforcing each other for better or worse. A health emergency like COVID can necessitate a monetary and fiscal response that drives inflation higher and, in turn, leads correlation relationships astray. Risk management protocols and the assumptions underneath them get tested. We've surveyed the financial component, bringing in guests who provided insights on the early 2018 setup before the XIV went down. We also discussed the pre-COVID fragility that resulted from active risk recycling programs that often left investors short, deep left tails. The main point is that when trying to assess a market risk event, the exposures that exist within the market matter and can't be ignored. As 2022 began, it quickly became apparent that market pricing relationships were in flux. The correlation between the S&P and TLT, which spent all of 2020 and much of 2021 in deeply negative territory, began to flip positive. Some of the really bad days for the stock market were also bad days for the bond market, not an aspirational outcome for a supposedly diversifying asset like duration. I count 14 days when both the S&P and TLT fell by more than a percent each on the same day in 2022. Also on the move in 2022 was interest rate volatility. Below 50 in mid-21, the move was 100 points higher a year later. As I review conversations with Alpha Exchange guests from 2021 and 2022, the focus was squarely on the monetary component of market risk. Janet Yellen once told us inflation is a mystery, or at least something close to that. That doesn't exactly inspire confidence. I explored the drivers of inflation with Peter Cicchini, the director of risk at Axonic Capital, asking him what his study of history has taught him here. About periods of inflation, he said, but when you go back and you study them, even in the 70s, there were other, there are two sort of conditions precedent that are needed. So two necessary conditions. One is some sort of inorganic demand booster that will oftentimes come from deficit funded spending, like during times of war, World War One, World War II, we saw a lot of inflation. It can also come from excessive lending. Indeed, What's interesting about the 70s is there was massive deficit spending in the late 60s, as well as excessive private lending in the early 70s. So inorganic demand boost, but usually from deficit spending. The never saw this before set of economic and financial charts that emerged in 2020 and 2021 is a fascinating one. Changes in payrolls, inflation, the ISM, the VIX, and crude prices are among them. Household excess savings, a direct result of government fiscal programs that helicoptered money, also spiked. In sharing his views on inflation, 
Peter Cicchini also said this. Lastly, what one tends to observe, and I think it's a symptomatic condition rather than a causal condition, is you see an explosion in M2. I have a chart that I've put out in some of my work, which I think you may have seen, where I use a seven-year rolling average on M2. And, and clearly, this particular form of fiscal stimulus funded by deficits put money in people's checking accounts, which is the most surefire way to get an inorganic burst in demand that is not coming from what we would normally expect, you know, innovation, productivity. The other piece on the supply side would be to say that we have a lot of disruptions in the labor force from incentive programs in the form of supplementary unemployment benefits. As mentioned, the interaction between stock and bond prices was quite unwelcome in 2022. I had the pleasure of welcoming Vadim Zlotnikov, president of Fidelity Institutional Asset Management, to the Alpha Exchange in March of 22 and got his take on this. Vadim said, You obviously raised one of the single most critical issues that is facing a 60-40, right? Or any sort of stock bond portfolio where bonds are expected to offer significant diversification. Now, the fact is that has been very much the case since 2003. Now, prior to that, the record is somewhat more mixed. There were periods of zero correlations, but there were also periods of meaningful positive correlation. And they've tended to correlate that positive correlation in between stocks and bonds tended to go up in periods of rising inflation. So the fact that it's happening recently is not real surprise. So that's one side of the story. And what's the conclusion? Well, you have to think perhaps more aggressively and perhaps be willing to take more of the risk in looking at other sources of diversification for the 60-40. And some people have gravitated to privates to try to find some of that diversification. But I think as we look forward over the next decade, that ability to continue to include additional sources of diversification, be it commodities, being long-short strategies, being a variety of strategies, I think is going to grow in importance over time. If the traditional place that duration exposure had played as a risk shock absorber was fading, the quest for alternative diversifying assets was becoming more critical. Not only has stock bond correlation been shown to flip positive during periods of high and rising inflation, the equity multiple has proven to suffer. In an April 2022 episode of the podcast, I asked Bloomberg's macro man, Cameron Kreis, about this. Are there any in the set of things that you look at now that just feel especially incongruous where you're kind of scratching your head and saying, boy, this A versus B, that relationship has become pretty untethered relative to history? The poster child for that is equity valuations and inflation. There's normally a pretty good negative correlation between the rate of inflation in the United States and the earnings multiple of the S&P. Some might say it's a spurious correlation. I don't know. I've got a model that uses not just inflation, but some other macro factors as well, which is kind of based on a model that GMO developed on the S&P multiple of the earnings yield is actually how I articulate it. And the conclusion is broadly, unsurprisingly the same, that given the macro volatility in terms of economic data and even adjusting for the level of yields, the multiple, it looks awfully high. This was pretty prescient stuff from Cameron. The S&P down about 5% on the year when we taped that show, 
would fall another 15% over the course of 2022, much of it tied to the inflation shock and valuation excess it chipped away at. Throughout 2022, the subject of stock bond correlation would be a topic of podcast discussion. Vishnu Karela, founder and CIO of Volar, shared this. Are the risks coming from central bank policy? Are the risks coming from inflation? Or are the risks coming from growth? And I think that helps you. And you can look at historical days where these were the drivers and what that relationship is. I mean, I think there's no question that inflation is a much bigger risk than it has been historically. And so that's why it makes sense that this correlation is picked up. And I think an assessment of how the correlation will be looking forward will, again, be an assessment of whether inflation remains to be very large risk. I like the way in which Vishnu considers stock bond correlation in the context of the why of the bond move. What is the proximate cause? We certainly got very used to deeply negative stock bond correlation levels in the post-GFC period. Then, bond market rallies were often driven by growth shortfalls that hurt the stock market. The post-COVID inflation, to be sure, has been unique. About it, Andy Constant, founder of Damp Spring Advisors, had this to say. Looking at back data, looking at past recessions, how they've worked, looking at past inflationary periods and how they've worked, I think you can learn from them, but I don't think we really have a data set that looks like what we're experiencing now. And I think that's an important takeaway. This inflation is unusual. This is people being handed money, literal helicopter money. It arrived via electronic transfer into your bank account, but by and large helicopter money. And so that unwind is just highly unusual. As the Fed kept policy rates glued to zero all the way into March of 2022, it was easy to wonder if the Fed was off track. Signs of financial excess were everywhere throughout 2021. Just ask peak buyers of NFT sporting names such as Sup Ducks, Lazy Lions, Cool Cats, and of course, Bored Apes. When I hosted an Alpha Exchange discussion with Seema Shah, the chief global strategist at Principal Asset Management, she said this. I think the number one lesson I have just from my process coming into asset management is you have to watch central bankers very, very carefully, but also you have to be alert to the mistakes that they're making. Because that is where the opportunities start to arise within investing. With that knowledge that central bankers were underplaying inflation, I think a lot of what then transpired with the market this year started to become actually quite clear. With this view and with the goal of protecting client assets through a period of potentially high inflation, Seema added this. If you want something which is basically inflation mitigation in a low growth environment, something which can still continue to give you a stable income stream. And for us, Within real assets, we do like commodities as a long-term play on some of the structural shortages facing the commodity universe. But most specifically, to us, this really plays into listed infrastructure. Now, if we look back to, I think, beginning of 2020, listed infrastructure has outperformed global equities and it's outperformed global fixed income as well. It's also had slightly negative returns, but it has definitely not done anywhere near as badly as fixed income and equities have. So this is an area which we think can continue to perform. Amidst the exploration of inflation and the monetary policy response to it that was an active part of the podcast conversations in 2022, we were also surveying the behavior of volatility. Let me just set the table here. In 2022, the SPX lost just about 20%. It must have been a great year for hedging, one might instinctively shout. 
Actually, the VXX managed to lose 24% in the same year. Such is the case when bear markets materialize in a relatively low vol fashion. And we can trace at least some of 2022's vol underperformance to the contrasting impact of inflation on different equity sectors, leading to a vol dampening low level of correlation. Dylan Grice, co-founder of Calderwood Capital, said this. So when you go back to the 1970s, what you had to do is just look at realized volatility, realized S&P volatility, which gives you some kind of inclination of what, what happened. You never got above 40 in the 70s. It's really interesting. Why? Because you didn't get the correlation events. Why didn't you get the correlation events? Because you really had some inflation shocks. And the inflation shocks are actually really, really good for some sectors. They were great for resource companies. They were great for gold miners, great for energy companies. Now would be a good time to engage in some sympathy for the plight of the defensive-minded equity portfolio manager. Duration as an offset? The TLT fell by more than the SPX did in 2022. Long equity vol to protect the portfolio? Think again. The P-put ETF, which buys and rolls 5% out of the money puts, managed to lose a bit more than the SPX itself did in 2022. It's as if you bought car insurance every month and had a consistent series of small fender benders resulting in damage costs of exactly your policy deductible, but no more. I mentioned the book Thinking Fast and Slow earlier. Since our broad theme for this podcast is uncertainty, I wanted to mention one additional quote from Daniel Kahneman's book. He says, quote, the idea that the future is unpredictable is undermined every day by the ease with which the past is explained. Wow, that is glistening with insight and is a strong way to explain the hindsight bias that impacts us all. Let's move from thinking fast and slow to hedging fast and slow. The title of a paper written by Daniel Villalon, the global co-head of Portfolio Solutions and colleagues at AQR. In a podcast earlier this year, Daniel shared some of the results of his work on hedging equity risk through episodes of turbulence. While explicit premium-based insurance is effective in mitigating losses in fast drawdowns, these strategies also suffer from bleed during the lengthy periods of stability that markets inevitably enjoy. Trend strategies, while not guaranteed to offset losses, have historically cushioned the blow. About trend following, Daniel says this. It is one of the few asset classes or strategies that we can find, that we have found in research, that tends to do well during periods of macroeconomic uncertainty, or, or we sometimes more colorfully call it macro turmoil. It's a pretty good strategy for bad times. And that leads to the third and final point, which you alluded to. In geek terms, it is a convex uh, strategy. It tends to do particularly well when other markets are doing particularly poorly. I've been arguing for years that the market mistook duration as a positive carry hedge. In 2022, the luster came off this most magical concept. Like duration, trend following also relies on the market's reflex during a risk-off to deliver profit, or at least not losses, to the strategy. In contrast to the put option, there's no contractual feature that makes this happen. But as Corey Hofstein, founder and CIO of Newfound Research explains, a trend following strategy does bear some resemblance to option trading. Corey shared this. So then I have to 
think about, well, what is the actual trading strategy that's happening here? And the trading strategy, going back to Black-Scholes for a second, the trading strategy of trend following is very simple. It says, when the price has been going up, we want to be long. When the price is going down, we want to be short. Well, depending on how you implement that, it actually ends up looking a heck of a lot like the delta replication strategy of a straddle. The results, both across time and asset classes, on trend following have been impressive. Diversifying assets that deliver positive returns are invaluable. Now, this statement certainly appears at odds with investing greats Charlie Munger and Stanley Druckenmiller. The late Munger, who recently passed away at the age of 99, coined the pejorative phrase diversification. Druckenmiller said, quote, I think diversification and all the stuff they're teaching at business school today is probably the most misguided concept everywhere. I think us mere mortals generally have to avoid the old risk of putting all of our eggs in one basket. And this gets us back to stock bond correlation and Fed policy. Making heads or tails of the Fed's tightening cycle has, rightly, stolen many waking hours from market professionals. How fast will they go? How high will they get to? And how long will they stay there? The comings and goings of various spread relationships across the U.S. yield curve deserve and receive endless attention. As the Fed tightened by 450 basis points in 2022, how did the market handicap the future path as last year ended? Turns out the implied policy rate was to have peaked around 5% versus where it actually got to 55 but even as the curve priced a couple of more hikes in 2023, it also discounted a mid-year about-face and turn towards incremental easing. In an early 2023 podcast, I solicited the views of Deep Kumar, then co-CIO of IIII Capital Management, on how the intermediate component of the yield curve would likely perform. Making the point that some version of higher for longer was his expectation, he discussed ways to essentially fade the degree of inversion. Think about if somebody's buying that two-year or five-year treasury here, you're going to be negative carry. And carry is an important part of buying treasuries. You're buying some element of term premium that your investment of time is returning some additional premium to that. And so that we think is where there's an element of mispricing, if you could call it that, in the curves right now, is that investors are not really being compensated for that turning out of the debt. And so that's what we think could get repriced and those yields could be higher. Related to Deep's observations, Rebecca Patterson, former chief investment strategist at Bridgewater, shared this in February of 2023. And so I keep asking myself, why is the market pricing and cuts, even if inflation is going to be above target? Do they really think the Fed would cut with inflation above target? As inflation has been such an overriding theme for global investors, it's been extremely interesting to engage experts on some of the pricing anomalies that have also occurred in this post-COVID world. Who could forget the ramp in not just meme stocks, but firms like Zoom and Peloton? Bucketed into valuation quartiles, the expensive stocks had gotten more expensive than ever versus the cheap stocks by some measures. Adam Parker, founder and CEO of Trivariate Research, shared this. I guess as a former Morgan Stanley employee, when I was writing my Q3 2020 letter to my investors, I had a former MS guy, I had a little pride. And I remember writing in my letter 
wow, Zoom is worth more than Morgan Stanley market cap wise. And as I was writing that, I checked and there was a moment, I can't remember if it was August of 20 or not in that time frame, where Zoom was worth more than Morgan Stanley plus Goldman Sachs combined. And so you had this moment of these two companies, which are fabulous money-making machines that had something like 16 or 18 billion in forecasted operating profit versus this thing that had 600 million and no obvious technological moat. Zoom and Peloton are two stocks that are down 88 and 96% respectively from their all-time highs. I am reminded of the old saying, quote, there are no bad securities, only bad prices. When 2022 would come to a close, value had massively outperformed growth, closing the gap somewhat between the expensive and cheap segments of the market. The, quote, sin a little bit, tilt, towards value espoused by Cliff Asnes, painful for a stretch in 2020 and 2021, finally paid off in 2022. 2023 has brought more discomfort to bond investors, but welcome positive returns to those in the stock market. In fact, if you fell into a deep, relaxing sleep on December 30th, 2021, and now just awakened, you'd see that the total return on the triple Q ETF you were long was almost exactly zero. Nothing to worry about. If 2022 was about a faltering stock market due a falling multiple amidst higher rates and inflation, 2023 was supposed to be the year the medicine of higher rates actually worked. Well, Year-over-year inflation is certainly down. As of this writing, CPI is running at 3.2%, half its level at the end of 2022. If higher rates were also supposed to cool the economy, raise the unemployment rate, and hurt corporate profit growth as well, there's a pretty mixed bag of evidence. Profits are up 4.8% year-over-year. Q3 GDP was a sizzling 5.2% annualized. And the unemployment rate is up, but still remains below 4%. Since reaching a recent high in the 10-year yield of right around 5%, an S&P low of around 4,100 in late October, everything has turned the other way. The 10-year has rallied a remarkable 80 basis points. The S&P is up 11%. The fix has fallen by 40%. The three-month, two-year component of the yield curve is reinverted, moving from minus 30 basis points to minus 80 basis points, suggesting the market anticipates the Fed being able to lower interest rates sooner and by more than it had recently. Fed Governor Chris Waller, a noted hawk, struck a recently optimistic tone on the future path of policy. He said that if the decline in inflation continues, quote, for several more months, three months, four months, five months, we could start lowering the policy rate just because inflation is lower. About the policy rate, he added, Quote, there is no reason to say we will keep it really high. And that gets us near the end of 2023, five years after the launch of the Alpha Exchange. I record this staring at a VIX below 13, well-behaved inflation break-evens, and real rates that have retreated by more than 50 bips from recent highs, landing just below 2%. We know that policy changes on the monetary front famously make their impact with long and variable lags. We also know that the interest rate increases of this tightening cycle had a different impact than they did in 2007, as teaser rates were being restruck much higher. Torsten Slock, partner and chief global economist at Apollo Global Management, had this to say on the subject. So the consequence of that is that households simply immunized themselves from rate increases. And you saw the same thing for companies, particularly IG companies, but also high yield 
they locked in low levels of financing. They turned out their debt substantially in 2020 and 2021. So as the Fed started raising rates in 2022, companies were incredibly well prepared. Households were incredibly well prepared. As prepared as the homeowner and many corporates were for the rate shock, it should be clear that when the cost of capital regime shifts to the degree it has, there's almost surely going to be fallout. There's one piece of research out there from Goldman in which they estimate that from 1989 to 2019, fully 40% of the stock market's excess returns over the period are due lower taxes and declining interest rates. We all know about the fabled maturity wall. For CRE, it appears most formidable. The IMF estimates that over 2024 and 2025 alone, there's roughly 1.6 trillion of maturing commercial real estate debt. A newer, higher cost of capital regime remains one of the largest unknowns out there. Over these past five years of hosting the podcast, so much has occurred. Again, using economic, financial, monetary, and political as your risk framework, we can observe nothing but change. With respect to the broader economy, the biggest inflation shock in 40 years occurred, and with it, a very steep Fed hiking cycle. Profits and valuations, both on an absolute and relative basis, have been in flux. Correlations have been on the move as well, forcing investors to reconsider the portfolio risk implications. New financial innovations have emerged. Who isn't familiar with the zero DTE option, that product that often expires before it clears? Between 2016 and 2023, zero days to expiration trading increased from 5% of total S&P options volume to 43%. As an aside, if you are grabbing zero DTEs as a stocking stuffer, it is recommended you not shop until Christmas Eve. There's a lot of commentary on the potential impact of these ultra short-dated expiry options. It's not obvious to me personally that there's a strong case to be made by the gamma caustic crowd. But because these products are so new, the jury is necessarily still out on whether the substantial volumes here may ultimately create spillover risk. What else has changed? Well, sadly, our politics have become further divided. In this area, there's some sharp analysis from the Pew Research Center on political polarization. Think of two distributions of political ideology, left and right. Each has its mean and its standard deviation. To what extent does the center left overlap with the center right? Definitively less so is the answer shown by Pew. Further, they show how the fringes have become more prominent in both parties. There are some major differences to say the least and no obvious way to create the environment in which they can negotiate on issues in good faith. In addition to the left and right wanting to appear tough on China, our two parties also seem aligned on deficit spending that increasingly looks on a precarious path. One might say that unsustainable debt is like pornography. You know it when you see it. Well, there still seems at least some time for these good United States to embrace a plan of fiscal prudence. Tim Geithner, no stranger to crisis period, used to say, plan beats no plan. The 2024 U.S. election will not likely feature much of a conversation on what the risks are of too much debt and strategies to address it. Further, there seems no appetite to talk about the obvious trade-offs, for example, higher taxes and lower growth one might encounter in doing so. Those are the politics of yesteryear. For the U.S., the poison chalice of being the reserve currency may have left us with so large a stock of debt that, 
When rolled at materially higher rates, the math, even for the world's largest economy, doesn't work. Let's do some review in this context. I find the Peterson Foundation's work on the path of U.S. debt to be really useful. First, the foundation reports that, quote, the growing debt is caused by a structural mismatch between spending and revenues. They cite three drivers. Rising healthcare costs per capita, America's aging population, and rapidly escalating interest costs. After talking about the first two, the foundation goes on to say that, quote, one of the most damaging effects of rising debt will eventually be growing interest costs. As the national debt grows and interest rates rise from their current low levels, the United States will spend more of its budget on the cost of servicing that debt, crowding out opportunities to invest in the economy. Additionally, interest costs will become the fastest growing component in the federal budget and will total $10.6 trillion in the next 10 years alone, according to the CBO. This is an obviously dangerous path. Let's review the annual deficits since 2019. That year, it was a shade below $1 trillion. In 2020 and 2021, deficits were $3.1 and $2.8 trillion, respectively. Biden took great credit for reducing the deficit to $1.4 trillion in 2022. Hooray! In 2023, the deficit is back up to $1.7 trillion. That's a five-year total increase of $10 trillion. For years post the GFC, it became highly unfashionable to ask questions about the national debt. Stephanie Kelton told us we weren't spending enough. The likes of Paul Krugman called people like Paul Ryan deficit scolds. As the growth of debt accelerated in 2020 and 2021, rates had plummeted. The interest costs associated with the debt appeared manageable, but of course, that assumed the once-in-a-century low levels of rates would continue. They clearly have not. And it does appear that the market has now noticed. When I had the pleasure of hosting an Alpha Exchange discussion with Dave Rogel, head of total return and inflation portfolios at BlackRock, we chatted about the bear steepening episode in U.S. rates that began in August of 2023. Here's what Dave's had to say. If July was about the growth data looking better than expected, August was what you described, which is this concern around treasury supply, but also the fiscal situation. And when you look at the supply dynamics today, they are pretty daunting because we have a situation where the Fed is running off its balance sheet, putting supply into the market. That's more issuance that needs to be done by the treasury. The banks are not acting as a shock absorber because there's concerns about increasing regulation and the ability of the banks to absorb duration. The treasury market, we have always been taught, is the risk-free bedrock of the financial system around which everything else is priced. I do get the concept, but I wonder if this sea of debt, the higher average borrowing rate needed to fund it, and the previously described trend towards ever more deeply entrenched political polarization is earning the impressive debt stack built by the USA some long overdue risk premium. If printing a 6.5% budget deficit alongside a 3.5% unemployment rate is the norm, one can only wonder what the fiscal side will look like when the inevitable recession does arrive. Tax receipts will suffer and automatic fiscal stabilizers will be launched. This year's deficit may wind up looking mild. 
add rating agency concerns to this potentially toxic brew. The Fitch downgrade of the United States in August from AAA to AA plus cited not just the growing general government debt burden, but the, quote, erosion of governance. The agency goes on to state that there has been a, quote, steady deterioration in standards of governance over the last 20 years, including on fiscal and debt matters, notwithstanding the June bipartisan agreement to suspend the debt limit until January 2025. The repeated debt limit political standoffs and last-minute resolutions have eroded confidence in fiscal management. Sadly, it appears that there is more of this coming to a theater near you. As our two parties engage in political combat, not much of import gets done on behalf of the people. But one budgetary initiative that is getting bipartisan support and is actually the fastest growing program in the federal budget, surpassing both Social Security and Medicare, is interest on the debt. According to the CBO, as said, this will total $10.6 trillion over the next decade. According to the Peterson Foundation, 91% of voters are concerned that the U.S. now spends $1.8 billion per day on interest. That's quite an overwhelming degree of concern, and yet the topic barely comes up. Put me in the camp that considers this a national emergency. I hosted a dinner in 2012 that featured Wyoming Republican Senator Alan Simpson. He'd been commissioned by Barack Obama to work with Democrat Erskine Bowles on a plan to discover the roadmap towards fiscal stability. This National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform was undertaken in 2010 when U.S. total debt outstanding was less than $14 trillion. It's now $33 trillion. At that dinner, Simpson told the attendees, quote, the problem is no one really knows what a trillion is. Well, how about $33 trillion? For me, this is the great vulnerability hiding in plain sight. Ben Franklin once said, quote, money makes money, and the money money makes, makes more money. He was espousing the magic of compound interest. USA Inc. is squarely on the wrong side of this math. It was economist Herb Stein who told us, when something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Let's hope there's an adult conversation to be had about U.S. debt dynamics before the market grabs the microphone. Each of these auctions is now receiving scrutiny, with some read-through on how well subscribed it was. There are specific instances in which an equity market sell-off has been linked to the results of a poor auction. They say that death and taxes are the only sure things in life. I'd add 300 plus billion of monthly treasury issuance to that list. Market price moves are some complex result of new news, the trades that exist at a given point in time, and the asset's capacity to absorb buying and selling at a given price. In October 2020, Randy Quarles, then vice chair of supervision for the Fed, said, quote, it may be that there is a simple macro fact that the treasury market, being so much larger than it was even a few years ago, much larger than it was a decade ago, and now really much larger than it was even a few years ago, that the sheer volume there may have outpaced the ability of the private market infrastructure to kind of support stress of any sort there. His comments were, of course, just months removed from the March meltdown in the risk-free asset. 
With regard to the treasury market's risk-bearing capacity, I had the opportunity to host a podcast with renowned finance academic Daryl Duffy, a professor at Stanford. Daryl's research on the March 2020 event in USTs caught my eye. He and colleagues collected a tremendous amount of data in the process of learning that the liquidity breakdown was largely a function of the significant increase in volatility. Makes sense, of course. But what they found further is that the market became entirely more illiquid, even scored for the huge level of volatility as a result of dealer balance sheet capacity drying up. Daryl said this. There's almost no dependence of illiquidity on balance sheet usage once you control for vol. But after you load up past 40%, then it starts to climb rapidly. It's roughly a squared relationship, highly nonlinear, as you mentioned. So when dealer balance sheet utilization goes beyond 40%, liquidity in the treasury market really begins to falter. It's interesting and ongoing work that leads to a series of policy recommendations aimed at making this critical, risk-free market safer. But at the end of the day, the debt trajectory left unaddressed will continue to impose itself as a vulnerability. As I record this, the TLT has experienced 21 daily moves this year in excess of 2% up or down. For the S&P, that number is just two. Insert confused emoji here. In your traditional risk-off event, the bond market rallies, a recipient of flight to safety capital. Over the last two years, there's been a reordering of cause and effect. It's often a rally or sell-off in the bond market that sponsors same in the equity market. In some ways, the U.S. bond market is just another risk asset, but it's over-owned and hardly has a compelling business plan for improving its fundamentals. Well, enough on that. As this is being recorded, the 10-year has rallied substantially off its 5% peak, sitting not far above a 4% yield now. It will be fascinating to monitor the incoming growth and inflation data and how the Fed sizes it all up. And of course, still outstanding is the impact of higher rates on that corporate economy called the S&P. Ultimately, stock prices move because earnings expectations change. Is this coming in 2024? Next year, of course, also brings a presidential election. It's difficult to capture the paths that seem at least plausible as we journey towards November 5th, 2024. It's sure to be entertaining, if not alarming, as well. As I close out this retrospective podcast, I'd like to quote the late actress Doris Day. She said, quote, gratitude is riches, complaint is poverty. Let's focus on the first part. Gratitude is riches. I love this. I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for the Alpha Exchange. Hosting this podcast over these last five years has been a true joy for me. I've learned a great deal, including to remember to hit record before starting a podcast. Whoops. I've met some wonderful, brilliant people. I've had the opportunity to do creative episodes like the Women in Finance Retrospective Podcast. Please check that one out if you can. And speaking of women, there's someone I'd like to thank for all of her help, my colleague, Kathy Peralta. There's a lot that goes into producing these episodes, and Kathy's attention to detail has been so valuable in making this possible. I want to express my sincere appreciation to the accomplished guests who have spent an hour with me, sharing their expertise and perspective. To borrow from the airlines, we know you have your choice of podcasts, and we appreciate you speaking with us today. And lastly, to you, the listener, I don't have the stats to prove it out. 
but I will put the listener base of the Alpha Exchange up against any finance podcast with respect to seniority and sophistication. It's wonderful to receive ongoing and positive feedback from you. I hope you are learning as much as I am. All right. I know I have a face for radio and a voice for podcasts, but even you may be done listening to me. I wish you a wonderful close to 2023 and the very best next year. Be well. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. (laughs) 